39 years ago, I met this woman. 37 years ago, yesterday, we got married. I got to tell you something. I've heard the saying that behind every great man, there's a woman. Behind this great woman is a man. (laughs) She has taught me. She's led me. She showed me early in our marriage that putting Christ first was the remedy to all of our relational tensions. And I followed her in that. And God has blessed us mightily for the last 37 years. And uh, he takes us deeper and deeper each year. I've gotten older, I've gotten grayer, I've gotten heavier. She just keeps getting more beautiful. (laughs) Will you pray for us? Only if I can first say that I have loved the journey and watching Mm. God flip the tables from being the woman who was saved before my husband and watching God raise you up. Mm. So God is great. Amen. 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 Father God, we just bless you right now, Lord, for the work that you do, uh, that you have a grand scheme and a design for each one of us that you promised to us, Lord. You have said in your word that you will complete the work which you begin, and you have promised that we would be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I thank you that in this body of believers that we're united together as the bride of Christ. And Lord, each one of us comes with baggage, Uh, with chains, Lord, that you're releasing us from over the course of the years, Lord. You are delivering us. You've rescued us. You've ransomed us, Lord, in salvation into your Son, taking us out of the dominion of darkness and placing us in the kingdom of light according to your own word, Lord. So, God, we bless you now. We thank you for all you have done in all of our histories, Lord. You have been doing a great work And, uh, Lord, I just bless you and praise you. I thank you for the work you've done in our lives and John's in my life. I thank you for the work you're doing right now uh, in each one of us, single, married, young, old, child, adult, teenager, whatever, Lord. You have each one of us in the palm of your hand. And, uh, God, we say it's by your great grace. It's by your great patience. It's by your great love that any of us can stand at a pulpit and pray through a microphone and give you glory, Lord. It's only because of you. So we offer you every bit of the victory, every bit of the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It helps that God has placed us in the middle of an incredible church family. We appreciate your support over the last 16 years and the love that you've given us. I'd like you to turn to Joshua, chapter 23. I want to read for a while. Um, We're covering two chapters today. We're not going to cover every verse in both chapters, um, but I'm going to read the parts that we are covering. Uh, So bear with me. I think it's important that we hear this, and that it's just as important as how we find out how to apply it a little while later. So Joshua 23 people are settled in Canaan, and this is what happens, starting with verse 1. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you have seen all the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, 
for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Joshua 24, starting in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads and judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterwards I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Parasites, the Canaanites, the, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land in which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. 
but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And down to Joshua 24, 24 through 28. The people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. God wants you to make a commitment. God wants you to make a commitment. He wants you to make a statement. He wants you to be public about your faith. He wants you to express a testimony of your faith. Now, we're going to see this in these last two chapters of Joshua. We move through the book fairly quickly. For those of you who have been with us for a while, you know we kind of dash through Joshua. But we started on October 2nd. Uh, this will be number 14 in the series in Joshua. Um, again, that's a little quick compared to what we've done in the past. But I hope, I hope you're able to get a good overview of what the book means, uh, what it says about God, what it says about us, what we've been able to learn in the time that we spent in it. Today, we're going to see three reminders in these final two passages. These are reminders because there are themes that have been scattered throughout Joshua. And, you know, if you take a close look at the Old Testament, the themes that we're going to see uh, scattered throughout Joshua are themes that are scattered throughout the entire Old Testament. So here are the three reminders we're going to see today. Number one, we're going to see what God has done among his people. We'll see what God expects of his people. And then we'll see what God is doing among his people. Our sermon today is called, I Give You the Land. This is part 14 of our series, The Promise and the Land in Joshua. Let's just go back to the beginning. When we started Joshua, uh, right there in chapter 1, we saw that the first chapter had a number of, of repeating words in it. And, and we kind of laid that out so that we could understand what, what the general themes of Joshua were. We saw that God gave, God was giving, or God gives uh, eight times in the first chapter. That's a lot. We saw the issue of the land come up nine times in the first chapter. That's more. We saw Moses' name come up 11 times in the first chapter. And we saw God's name occur 10 times, but we saw God referred to an additional 10 times. So God was referred to 20 times in the first chapter. That's a bunch. Now, I pointed out to you that most books in the Bible have what they call a head and a tail. And 
uh, bookends, if you would look at them that way, but they set the theme of the book up front, and the, the head sets the theme of the book up front, and the tail kind of resolves that theme at the end. Uh, that's not really miraculous. Uh, what it is, though, is really good communication. It's God saying, look out, here's what I want to say to you during this book, and then he says it during the book, and then he kind of reiterates it and brings it to an end at the end of the book, uh, but they're there. So based on the frequency of these words that we saw in chapter 1, we surmise that chapter 1 was all about God giving land to his people as Moses said that he would. So that's what we were supposed to watch out for. So now here we are in chapter 23 and chapter 24, and we hear more recurring words. This time we hear God referred to, listen, in two chapters, 59 times. Boy, I told you, the book is a story of, of God, right? We hear God's refer, referred to 59 times in two chapters. Not once is my name in there. So we, we see, and, and, and neither is yours. <laughs> we, we see the land uh, or an inheritance referred to 14 times in two chapters. We see God has given or gave 11 times. And we see the idea uh, that he has done as he's promised four times. Now, four times in two chapters is a lot. You put all those numbers together, and we get a definite idea of what's going on in these last two chapters. The tale of Joshua is that the Lord has given his people the land. So the promise is at the beginning of the book. The promise fulfilled is at the end of the book. And you can get that much out of reading your Bible just by looking for repetition. So, when we get to chapter 23, we see Israel's in their new home. They've settled in. They are at rest from their surrounding enemies. And Joshua's getting old. And he calls everybody together. Um, and what he wants to do is he wants to remind them of what God has done. And that's our first reminder, what God has done. In Joshua 23, uh, 1, we, 1 through 5, actually verse 3, we hear that God has fought for them. Uh, we hear that God has allotted an inheritance for them and cut off, uh, which means that he's conquered the lands within and, and around them as well. And it's caused a lot of stronger pagan nations to run in fear from them. Now, we've seen that a number of times. Uh, uh, Israel has a fairly large army, but the army doesn't compare to the armies that they amass that come against them. And, and now God has gained the victory so much, and it's been such a resounding defeat of the enemy that more powerful nations are running away from Israel. They're afraid of them. So the reminders pick up again uh, in chapter 24, where we see God's covenant with Israel restated. He just reaffirms the covenant. In verse 2, the Lord begins to prophesy through Joshua, speaking to Israel, and he he traces the lineage of God's chosen people right there in the beginning of 24, starting with Abraham's father and recounting Israel's journey uh, uh, to and from Egypt and through the wilderness, through uh, the country on the other side of the Jordan and into the promised land. Uh, so it, it's this entire journey from north in Syria all the way down to the south. And, and then we see this in verse 13. 
I gave, this is God speaking, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now the very first thing we need to see in there is a picture of God's grace. They haven't, they haven't done anything to earn any of this. Yes, they're fierce warriors. Uh, yes, they went into battle. But God says, I've given you these cities, these I've given you the land to dwell in and vineyards and olive orchards and everything, and none of it really belongs to you. There are gifts of grace. But between what we see in chapter 23 and chapter 24 combined, there are more lessons to be learned about what God has done for those that are his. And one of them is this. The time frame that we're talking about in this little genealogy, in this little uh, travel log here, uh, starts from somewhere around 2000 B.C. and ends somewhere around 1350 B.C. It's around 650 years. Divide that up into generations, uh, you're looking about somewhere around 15 generations. It covers all of the generations between uh, Abraham and his fathers and his descendants, starting in what we now know as Syria, down to Egypt and back up to Israel the long way, actually. So what we need to see in that is that God knows God is aware of every step that they've taken. He is the God of all history. He's aware of everything that happened. He, has, he recounts every major event. He talks about all the locations. He talks about all the people involved. God knows all this because here's the second thing we need to see in this, because he was with him from the beginning. He says, I was there. I know who Abraham's father was. I watched all this happen. It was me who chose him. It was me who catalyzed all this. So not only was he with them from the beginning, but he has preserved them and protected them. He got them through all this and got them to the promised land. He's not a God who sits back and observes. He's not a God who's detached. He's not just, he didn't set everything in motion, and now he's just watching it work. He's involved in the details of their lives. He knows their struggles. He knows their pain. He knows their shortcomings, their joy. And he loves them enough to call them his children, even though they have some shortcomings and stumble from time to time. That should encourage us. But maybe this will help us encourage you a little bit more. Add this lesson to the list. Not only is he the God of history, and he knows all this, but you know what? He told them what he was going to do before he did it. He told them what he was going to do from the get-go. Told them where they were going. He told them how they were going to get there. He told them who would live and who would die. He told them when the ones who would die would die. He gave them numbers. He gave them directions. He gave them names of location. And it all happened just the way that he said it would. God kept his word. In between all the names... And all the events and all the places, these are the things God has done. And he wants his people, he wants Israel to remember them. But he wants us to remember them as well. He wants us to see what's happening here. Because all of the things that God did for Israel, he has done for us, brothers and sisters. I told you back in chapters 10 and 11 that we would miss a lot of the Old Testament if we read it and didn't see ourselves in Israel, if we didn't see our story in Israel's story, the lessons they learned 
They learn so that we can learn. Isn't that what Paul told us in Romans? Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days... What is Paul talking about was written in former days? Scripture. Talking, and what scripture is he talking about? He's not talking about Revelation, folks. <laughs> Hadn't been written yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Why did God want to in, in, instruct us? Why did he want to teach us? That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we, you and me, might have hope. They learn their lessons so that we can have hope. What can we learn from Israel's first reminder? Well, personally, he's the God of my history. He is with me from the beginning. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's the God of your history. He was with you from the beginning. He preserves and protects us. He tells us all this, and then he keeps his word to us because he's faithful. Isn't that one of the things we learned about him in Joshua? That's the first reminder. Take a look at our second reminder. What God expects of his people. This is a good one. We saw what God has done for his people. Now, what does God expect them to do? I mean, what can we do for God? Can we add to him? Can, you know, what can we do for God? Well, there are things. People tell you there aren't, but there are. Chapter 23, 6 through 8, we see that God's people are to be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Now, the phrasing here indicates that they are to be totally dedicated, totally sold out to the Lord their God, totally dedicated to being as obedient as they possibly can. God never calls us to perfection, but he calls us to have hearts that desire to please him. So they are to be as obedient as they possibly can. God has given them the guidelines he expects them to do their very best to keep them. He says, turning aside from it, the book, neither to the right hand nor to the left. That's in the second half of verse 6. Keep your focus. What this means is they're not supposed to allow themselves to get distracted. They're not supposed to allow themselves to get lured off track by something that seems to be attractive or seems to be more valuable than their pursuit of God. They're to keep their focus on God, keep their focus on God's word, make them their priorities in their lives. And for this very reason, they are not to get too close to the nations around them. And what that means is they're not to have intimate relationships with them. They're certainly not to worship their gods. They can probably do some business with them, some of them, but they're not to worship their gods. They're not to intermarry. They're not to intermingle. And they can avoid doing all that by clinging to God. And I love the, the terminology there. It is to cleave. It means to hold on to desperately, to hold on with all your strength, to pursue that closeness to God with everything that you have. They were to cling to God. And Joshua has an encouragement here. Because when he says you should cling to God, he says, just as you have been. They have been as obedient as they can. And it's one of the reasons they're being blessed. That's what we heard last week. See, their time in the wilderness has taught them to be totally dependent upon God. God gave them food every morning. He gave them water when they were thirsty. He equipped them as an army. Then, then he not only equipped them as an army, then he gave them their first military victory. They need to depend 
on him in Canaan the same way they learned to depend upon him out in the wilderness. Our dependence upon God never stops. A little further down in verse 11, we see another expectation. They are to love the Lord their God. Again, in this verse, the, the phrasing is crucial. The connotation is that they are to love the Lord their God without reservation. They are to do it completely with all of their being, doing nothing to jeopardize the, the, the relationship they have with their Father in heaven. And in chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, we see two more things God expects of his people. Uh, and, and both of these come in uh, what I believe is one a, a commonly misunderstood passage. So let's take a look at it. Uh, verse 14 tells them to fear God, uh, to forsake the God of their fathers, their ancestors. Um, uh, that's an admonition not to return to them, but to stay faithful to the God who has given them the land. And then take a close look at verse 15. And let me share this with you right up front. A lot of people think that this verse is asking them to make a choice whether to choose or reject God. And it, it's neither that simple, nor are those the choices they're being offered. So what we're going to do is we're, we're going to slow down for just a minute. We're going to look at this closely. And we're going to read it out loud together. Can you do that? Either open up your Bibles or look on the screen. Joshua 24, 15. And read with me. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, okay, you're all safe. First question we need to ask about this verse is, who's Joshua talking to? Who's Joshua talking to? He's not talking to a bunch of barbarians. He's not talking to pagans. He's talking to the chosen people of God who have already made a number of professions of faith. Amen? We saw that in the wilderness a number of times. They're not always good at walking in their, their profession of faith. They stumble and fall, but we don't want to be too hard on them because we kind of have the same problem. At least I do. I'm not sure if you do. So this is not a group of ungodly people being asked to convert and place their faith in our Father in heaven. So that's the first thing we need to take a look at. Who's he talking to? Second thing I want, you to, call, I want to call your attention is this, this first phrase. If it is evil in your eyes. Now, in the Hebrew, this is kind of a difficult phrase to translate. Uh, so if you pick up two or three different translations, you'll see different nuances in here. Uh, the NIV gets it pretty good. It says, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, um, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which I think is an excellent translation, it's a little bit newer than the ESV, translated, if it doesn't please you, and, and that is followed by the next phrase, which is, choose this day whom you will serve. And so that gets thrown up there, and we're going, oh, they got to make a decision here. But look, Joshua only gives them two other options. If you're not happy worshiping God, he only provides two other options to choose from. Why would he limit the number of options? If they've got to make a decision, wouldn't they just make the decision that, that they want to make? 
Joshua only gives him two choices. He gives him only two choices because he's trying to make a point. So look at the, sec- look at the first option here. Uh, whether Choose this day whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river. Now, what river is he talking about in this verse right here? He's, you know, the only river in the area is the Jordan. He's talking about the Jordan River. Now, that's the first choice, the gods beyond the Jordan. A little bit earlier, he talks about uh, the gods, be, uh, the, their, uh, their ancestors' gods beyond the river. That's Euphrates. It's up north. Uh, that'll be lumped in with all this. Okay? And here's the second option. So the first option is the gods over there, over the river. The second option is the gods of the Amorites. And the two choices that Joshua offers them, listen carefully, the gods beyond the river, the gods beyond uh, the Amorites, the two choices that Joshua offers them are the people and the gods that the one true God just defeated. Aren't they? I mean, they have victory over them. It's the people that they have displaced. Now, right away, if if we see that, we see that these really aren't very, very good choices that they're being offered. Take another look at verse 14 where Joshua told them, put away other gods. Which other gods is he talking about in verse 14? The one beyond the river and in Egypt. These are the ancestor ones and the ones in Egypt. Well, God delivered them from the gods of their ancestors. And God has totally defeated the gods of Egypt and the plagues. All of these gods have been totally defeated by God with all their belongings given to Israel in the process. So let me ask you something. Given those choices, would you like to worship the God who just gave you all this stuff or would you like to worship the gods that have been defeated and all the people who have been killed? What choice would you make? How would you make that? Let me give you... A Kavakis paraphrase for, for verse 15 here. Joshua's kind of like, if you don't want to serve God, who just gave you this land, perhaps you'd like to serve one of those other gods who you just saw get squashed like a bug. Would you like to do that? Joshua's asking them to make an absurd choice. And he caps it off with, I don't know about you, but for me and my descendants, we're going to serve the Lord that has been taking care of us. Maybe we can simplify it even further and paraphrase it as, after everything you've seen, who are you going to serve? Those gods are the one true God. I can tell you this, for me and my clan, We're going to serve the Lord. See, here's what's happening in verse 15. Joshua is calling on them to make a commitment. He's calling on them to make a public statement. He's not asking them to get saved. He's asking them to make a vocal reaffirmation of their faith. He wants them to have a reverential fear of the Lord, and he wants them to proclaim their everlasting commitment to God in heaven. And as their leader, he does what a good godly leader should do. He decides first, but he doesn't stand there waiting for them to make up their mind. He expects them to agree with him, and you know what? They do. They make the vow right away in 16 and 18, repeating the lessons that uh, the blessings that God has given them. Knowing all of the blessings, Joshua wasn't really giving them a chance to make a choice. He was giving them an opportunity 
to give thanks and glory to God for everything they had received. So those are the things that God expects of his people, particularly from Israel. Keep the law. Obey the guidelines they've been given. Cling to God passionately without reservation. Hold on to him, not losing their focus. To love God, to, to surrender everything to them, giving their hearts to him and no other. To fear God, to maintain a reverential respect for him. And to commit to God, to make a public, open profession of faith. The list defines how God wants his children, Israel, to to perceive him, how he wants them to relate to him. And it was true 4,000 years ago. i got to tell you, it's true today. It's true today. God was showing them, but he's showing us how we should relate to him. We should keep his law to the best of our abilities. We should cling to him passionately, more so than we cling to anything else. We should love him with all of our hearts and all of our souls, all of our minds. Devote ourselves to him. We should ponder him, meditate upon him. We should surrender ourselves completely to him and to his word. We should fear him. But, uh, you know, we've talked about this before. It's not a trembling, quaking fear. It's a reverential awe. It's, it's basking in his glory and seeing what a tremendous, awesome, great God that he is. We don't take him callously. We don't take him flippantly and we should commit to him we should be bold about who he is in our lives we should be easy to share who he is in our lives so that other people can see that they can experience his blessings as well so our third reminder comes just before joshua dies and gets buried in the hills of ephraim in verse 26 joshua wrote the word of the law down placed a large stone under a terebinth tree in Shechem. The stone, the stone's a reminder of the law. You can see they're associated there. A reminder of the word of God is a reminder of God's ongoing presence. The third reminder is a reminder of God's ongoing presence. He's among them. He's living with them. The location of the stone, this is significant, makes the stone easy to find. But it's not there just for Israel to remember what happened. You see that terebinth tree? It's an oak tree. An oak tree in Scripture is always a sign of strength. So it's not just a reminder. It's a strong reminder of the vow the people made. But it's also a constant reminder of God's presence. Every, you know, the oak tree and the stones are, where are they? They're just outside the tabernacle. Every time Israel goes to worship, every time they go to have their sins atoned, they'll be reminded of the fact that God is among them, that his word is active and, and moving among them. They'll, remembering, they'll remember that, that, that God is not only among them, but he gave them the land and the, the trees growing on. They'll remember the vows that their father made. They'll remember that they've got to walk in those vows as well. They'll remember the blessings they have. And, and you know what? All of that stuff... The commitment, the stones, the law, everything, it works. It works. It does exactly what God designed it to do. The commitment they made works. The stone works. Uh, they have a long-term impact on Israel. It's long-term, but not perfect. 
But here's what we see in Joshua 24, 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. The commitment has a long-lasting impact. But it's not eternal. It's not permanent. We'll get to that in just a second, but for now, there's the three reminders that are in chapters 23 and 24. What God has done, what God expects of his people, and what he's doing. And we, we, we went pretty deep on, on what the reminders one and two mean to us, how we apply them in our lives. But what about this third reminder? What, is, what does that mean to us? The stone, the rock. It does have meaning for us. Maybe in a way that will surprise you. You know, you can, you can go... You can go to a town on the uh, West Bank called Neblus, um, where Shechem was. Uh, Palestinian controlled right now. And the, uh, but you can see the site of Shechem. Mount Gerizim is there on, on the right, and Mount Ebal is on the left, where they did the blessings and the curses. The ruins of Shechem lie right in the middle of the city, right in between the mountains. Those are the ruins right there in the middle of the picture. And if you look closer on those ruins, you can see a bunch of upright stones and what? An oak tree. Isn't that incredible? You know, are those the stones? Is that the tree? We don't know. <laughs> Probably not. Most of the trees don't last 4,000 years. But you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The stone that Joshua set up underneath that tree was never intended to be a permanent and perfect reminder. It was indeed a reminder of God's presence and his word among his people, but only for a while. And we know that's true because if you continue and read beyond Joshua and move into the book of Judges, you'll find out really quick that, that right after that generation and a half or so passes away, Israel's headed for some real problems. They're going to struggle in their relationship with their Father in heaven. So the third reminder is just like the other two as in, in how it applied to Israel. They, they are imperfect. They were temporary reminders. They had no eternal value, but all three of them serve as what I call pointers. Pointers. They point in a certain direction. And as we found out in our time in Joshua... And in looking at other passages in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is full of pointers, full of shadows of what is to come. It's full of pointers that point towards shadows that, that are a reflection of Jesus Christ. They point towards the cross, shadows of the cross, and shadows of a sacrifice that will one day end all sacrifices. It's full of shadows. It's full of shadows of God's perfect plan of redemption. They're not clear, but they certainly point to it. The stone in Shechem is one of those shadows. It's a shadow of a permanent reminder of God's law and his presence. A perfect reminder that Jesus leaves behind when he ascends into heaven the same way that Joshua left those stones behind. And our reminder, our perfect reminder, brothers and sisters, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here to remind us of God's presence, to remind us of his words. He is a constant presence in our lives. 
And here's the beautiful part of that. When we understand the Holy Spirit is this rock that is a constant indication of God's presence in our lives, we will understand that it is the Spirit that allows us to walk in the reality of the first two reminders. The Spirit empowers us to embrace all three of the reminders. He's a guarantee that seals the three reminders in our lives. And we need him because we, like Israel, are unable to embrace those reminders on our own. Without the Spirit, we quickly forget what God has done. Without the Spirit, we are unable to meet his expectations. Without the Spirit, we will never be aware of what he's doing. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us the Holy Spirit empowers us. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit, empowered to live God-honoring lives, empowered to be an expression of the gospel out in the community that we live in. It's all made possible by the one who died on the cross and sent his spirit to guide us, to enable us, to sanctify us, to counsel us, and to bring us home just like God sent Joshua to bring Israel to their home. See the shadow? Joshua gave him a stone to remember. Jesus gave us a spirit. Jesus gave us a spirit to be our rock. And our rock, like the one at Shechem, has a location that makes it easy to find, except, you know, some, ours is a lot easier to find. They had to go underneath a tree. Ours is inside us. Our reminder is inside us. God, is by his grace, does not place it under a tree, but inside us. How do we appropriate all this? You know what? Starts with us making a commitment, doesn't it? You came in here today and you've never made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's your time. The scripture tells us if we confess our sins, we repent, turn towards Jesus Christ. We believe that with our heart. We make that commitment, that vocal commitment. We get eternal life. But you know what? We see the pattern over and over again. It doesn't end there. It starts there. Amen? And we are to reaffirm that commitment. We're to reaffirm that commitment to the world. Those of us who believe, we're to make that public statement. How do we embrace the three reminders? How do we get all the Holy Spirit? We do the things that God tells us to do. We know what he's done. We do our best to live up to those things he calls us to do. And we get aware of what he's doing. Once we make that faith in a public statement, we trust the Spirit to help us walk it out. And that's the end of Joshua.